Don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church. That's under attack. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very powerful subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms, all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Like, for instance, we have the Facebook page. When you type in at Our Mighty Fortress, you can also take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com. A lot of media there, articles, videos, and even our merch store where you can help support the work through our T-shirts. If you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website and the established PayPal link. Also, if we've helped you through this work, we'd love to hear about it. You can send us an email at OurMightyFortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I'd like to talk about the book of Job and its very powerful story of many aspects. We see the suffering of Job and the cry of his soul before God. We also see the greatness and glory of God in the midst of Job's trials, though he himself couldn't see it at first. Let me share with you the main thought in which... I've really titled this podcast, and it's called With a Purpose. We're going to deal with one of the most difficult subjects that can be preached on or really even spoken about in general, and that is the problem of suffering. It's a subject that touches us all, whether you're young or old, great or small. This subject is quite vast, and obviously one podcast isn't going to be able to totally encapsulate everything, but I really want to focus in on one particular aspect and that suffering has a purpose. I'm going to deal with this concept that might be a little hard on some of our consciences, but we're going to work through the first couple chapters of Job to really set the stage for what I'm talking about. This podcast is going to be a bit longer than usual because of the nature of the subject, but treating it with all the respect that it deserves. With that introduction, let's get right into this. The first thing we see is that Job had a specific purpose before God. In Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we really see an introduction and description as to who Job was in his character and person. It's very important and very foundational for us to understand the rest of the story that's supposed to, that is um, going to transpire. There are some important things to observe within the first five verses. 
In the very first verse, we see that Job is described as a perfect and upright man. The word perfect here doesn't mean sinless. The Hebrew word denotes a wholeness or integrity. He was one that feared God and eschewed evil. And this further defines his character. Job was a man of both private integrity and public honesty. We're going to begin to really see that later when his friends stepped in and some of the things that they said. We also see that he was a very wealthy man who was blessed by God. And we see that in verse 3. I mean, it lists his holdings, his financial portfolio, if you put that in modern terms. It shows us the obvious wisdom that he had in handling his finances as the Lord blessed him. It really does speak a lot about his character. We see the scope of his family as well, because he has seven sons and three daughters. That's in verse 2. Job's sons and daughters liked each other. They loved each other. I mean, we really get that because they wanted to be around each other. It says that they met with each other on their each, you know, their particular special days and those types of things. And we don't get any type of negative attitude with them or any other type of information. And given the nature of Job and his character, we can kind of assume, hey, this family actually liked each other. They actually loved each other. Well, that really points to Job as a father. He was a good father. Job would also offer sacrifices for his children in verse 5. The setting was in the time of patriarchs like Abraham, and that's not really unusual for that time. What we see is a father who's concerned for his children's spiritual being. Now, I don't believe this verse was meant to communicate that his children were outside the will of God or that he had to atone for their sins somehow. You know, there's some commentators that go that direction, but I don't believe that for one moment. It's not uncommon for a parent to pray for their child even today, you know, so it's not really that much different from back then. Next, starting in verse six, we see the divine council meeting. We're given a glimpse into some of the events that take place into the heaven of heavens where God lives. We see that the sons of God or the angels are called before God. It doesn't really explain the purpose or much of the detail, but what we do know is that Satan himself is there. Now, we should note that the word Satan appears 14 times between chapters 1 and chapter 2. He is consistently identified throughout the scripture as the adversary, which is literally what his name means. The Hebrew word here is ha-satan, or the adversary. When we put the name meaning alongside the entirety of scripture, not only is the adversary of God, he is also the adversary of man. Man being in the image of God, we see he hates us the most, probably because through us he feels he can get back at the creator of all the universe. The Lord asks Satan where he is coming from in verse 7, and Satan's response is pretty interesting. We can see in his response that he has the freedom to walk and go where he wants on the earth. The second part implies that he was wandering or exploring. The Apostle Peter has a very similar description in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 where he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We see that the description there, though your adversary, once again, that's what Satan's name literally means. Walking about seeking whom he may devour. The same kind of imagery is used there. Notice in Job chapter 1 and verse 8, God is the one that recommends Satan to look at Job. Now think about that. It's not that Satan had identified Job and wanted to mess with him. God puts him forth as an example. 
God holds him up as an example of a righteous man on the earth. Now, this interaction in verses 9 through 12 was pretty interesting. Let's read it. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and all his house and about all that he hath on all, and on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance increase in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth his, thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So we see that Satan puts an accusation before God, like, Job only loves you because you bless him. And God's like, oh, yeah? Everything, everything that he has is in your hand. Just don't touch him. That's pretty powerful. God is going to make a point to Satan that will stand for thousands of years until now, until we're reading it. The point that God demonstrates is that Satan has no true power over God's creation especially God's pinnacle of creation, which is man. It may not seem like it at first, but Job gets the amazing privilege to be one who sets the example for all of us to read today. He gets the amazing privilege to do this. The book of Job is about to demonstrate the power of God over the suffering of this world. In verses 13 through 22, we see that all the different things that Satan does and taking away the livestock, taking away the servants, taking away uh, and killing Job's kids and and just destroying everything that he has. Now, you got to think about this for a moment. One after another, as each servant comes in to tell Job this information, probably never before in the history of mankind has there been so much taken away in one swipe. Satan wasted no time in coordinating different people groups to include supernatural acts to train wreck Job's life. There have been tragic stories in history, but none of them have come to the kind of scope that Job went through, especially one after another. Bam, 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 bam. Just one right after another. Job, the man of God, responded by just, he tore his mantle, he shaved his head, and he fell down and worshiped God before he ever uttered a word. Then he said one of the most powerful verses in verse number 21. He said, And said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. We see in chapter 2, Verses 1 through 8, notice that the divine scene plays out again when a very similar instance is chapter 1. Divine counsels held. Some of God's present themselves uh, before God to include Satan. That, by the way, is pretty interesting that Satan himself has to present himself before God. For what reason, we're not told, but that's the scene. So, he gives Job God gives Job some of the greatest compliments in Scripture, given the situation. Even after all of that, all of that, Job still holds his integrity and is given the greatest compliments. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and that sheweth evil? 
and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without a cause. And then Satan tries to up the ante here and say, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee that I face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Again, Satan's going to get a slap in the face and learn a lesson before all of us here to read now that he has no power before God, that he's going to put boils and cause physical suffering upon Job, and yet Job is not going to crack. In verses 9 through 10, Job's wife comes out and attacks him. Job responds righteously, but we're going to address that later. Verses 11 through 12, Job's friends show up to show support for him. Well, at first anyways, they're quiet there and they sit there for seven days. And that would have been great had they kept their mouth shut and just been supportive. But we wouldn't have much of a story for the rest of Job because they're going to come next and start to rebuke Job later. It is important to note at the end of verse 13 of chapter 2, where it says that Job's friends observed that his grief was very great. This was a man who was hurting very deeply, very deeply. He had lost everything. Can we really put ourselves in his shoes? Sometimes when I read the scriptures, I like to put myself, or even really any type of history, but I do this with the scriptures as well. I put myself in that person's shoes. What must it have been like? What would you have done? Had, had you had everything just ripped away from you in that moment? I don't know what I ha or what or how I would have felt, but I know that my grief would have been very great. And most of all, Job wasn't even privy to any of his conversations that took place in heaven. And we don't know who wrote the book of Job. Some think that was penned by someone inspired of God later. Some think that might have been Job. Job may have found out what had transpired, Later, after the fact, we're not told in scripture, but either way, he sure didn't know as he's going through it. And we're talking about days in which he had no clue. It was just seven days after the fact that they sat there and didn't say a word. Seven days just in itself. Not to mention the rest of the chapters of the conversations and the things going back and forth between Job and his friends. We don't know how much time, but it was a considerable amount of time. I mean, we're not talking about years or anything, but the fact is, is that he sat there and he had no clue, no idea what was going on. He thought, wow, I had sinned before God. What in the world did I do to deserve this? And before we are too judgmental of that fact, just know that, hey, we get to see the whole story, but he didn't know. I mean, what would you first think of if you've had all these things done to you? I know what I would think of automatically. What? did I do? God, I am so sorry. <laughs> it's like human nature. That's the first conclusion we would jump to, even though it's not necessarily true. We'll explain more about that in a bit, but we're going to bring this to the second part. We're going to see that suffering has a purpose. So we saw that Job had a purpose in this story, a very specific and important purpose. Now we're going to see that suffering has a purpose itself. We do have the benefit of reading the book of Job and knowing how everything transpires. 
We know that God's going to bless Job unbelievably in the end for his faith, but Job doesn't know that as he's going through the story. In fact, in the moment, Job has no clue of the conversation, right? So he's in this lost daze of like, what did I do? Everything moves so quickly, and it seems as though really he did receive the judgment of God. He didn't know. He thought he's, like I said before, he thought he sinned before God. It's very important to drive this point home that Job was chosen to go through an extreme set of circumstances to be an example, as I said, though he did not know it at the time. In chapters four and so many after that, his friends are going to jump on him and accuse him of sinning and that he need to get right before God and all sorts of craziness. I mean, they said a lot of foolish things that later on, the end of the book of Job, that God's going to rebuke them for later. And even still, in all of that, he did not curse God. That's a man of character. That's why he was chosen to stand as the example. When we look at the different kinds of suffering, there are four types that we're going to endure in this life. Some suffering is brought on by man, while at other times is brought on by God's hand. Some of it may be justified, while at other times it may not be. The first type of suffering that we could endure is called persecution. This is undeserved suffering inflicted by people and it's permitted by God. The second type is punishment. Well, this could come from serving a prison sentence or some type of uh, sentence by the law. So it's caused by man or inflicted by man for some just cause. The third type of suffering is chastisement. chastisement. This is a deserved suffering by God. I, I can tell you, well, any Christian could probably tell you if they're really honest with themselves, I have endured the chastisement of the Lord from time to time. I've got examples. <laughs> it makes me chuckle, but it wasn't pleasant at the time, of course. And I'm sure it makes you laugh when you think about like, yeah, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to do is to shape us and mold us, right? That's from God. Now, the last type of suffering or form of suffering, this is the one that kind of bothers us the most because it seems like it's undeserved suffering. It's affliction, affliction. This type of suffering just seems like it's not really even understood at times. There are times where we don't even know why we're being afflicted. Sometimes we're given the benefit of knowing but many times we don't know. And this is the type of suffering that Job himself is dealing with. This kind of suffering comes from the permission or specific decision of God. And it can come from natural circumstances or it can come through the actions of people. It's at this point, I want to look back at the remarks of Job's wife in chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Job's wife is speaking. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. We see the effects upon Job's second half. His wife. You know, there's a lot of people who have opinions about this passage, but 
if you read it plainly and you match it with Job's response, she sinned here. Now, Job responded by saying that you speak as one of the foolish women. It denotes someone who knowingly rejects the words and ways of God. The rebuke also implies that the kind of language that was coming for her was out of character because it says you speak as one of. It didn't say she was a foolish woman. So because of the pain, her emotions got the best of her and she said something that I'm sure she regretted. I think we've all been there, myself included. She was used by Satan in this instance to put a massive thorn in his side to drive the grief further. God said that two shall become one flesh when they get married, and this is probably why she wasn't touched by Satan like the kids were. Those who are women who may be listening to this podcast, you know, never forget about your impact upon your husband and the ministry. The avenue by which Satan chose to destroy Adam was through Eve. Now think about that. That's been the story of history, and even the secular world notes leaders who were brought down by a woman. The secular world notes this in history. There's plenty of examples of this. <laughs> That's why it's always funny, because us guys can think, oh, hey, we're so big and bad, but <laughs> guess what? You got to go to sleep sometime, big boy. <laughs> yeah, about that. <laughs> but ladies, don't ever think that you're not important. Satan seems to think that you're important enough to destroy the man through you, but the opposite is also true. A husband and wife who's on the same page and the same team are a very powerful tool for God, a very powerful tool. Now, shifting back to the subject of suffering, when a person goes through the trials and through the tribulation, that pressure is going to get turned up. The pressure is going to feel so intense. I'm sure that's how Job's wife felt. I'm sure that's how Job felt. And really, this is where a person is going to truly find out who they are before God. Suffering can seem like it's unjust when it's caused by God, but we can't really truly assess or know ourselves until we have the heat turned up in our life. Peter was the perfect example of this. Remember how he said, oh, I'll never forsake you, Jesus. I'll die right alongside you all the way till the end. I'm just paraphrasing there. But, but what happened in the judgment hall? He denied Christ three times as, as was foretold. Jesus later, this is a completely different lesson in itself. It's a, a major leadership lesson here. Jesus later after the resurrection would personally shape and mold him to become the leader he needed to be at Pentecost, but he had to learn some humility. And that's where that whole process of having the heat and pressure turned up to help shape him. It's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can handle any task without trials. Suffering is unpleasant, but the lessons are lifelong and shapes a person into what God wants them to be. We see this concept even with our military today what is the point of boot camp but to put you through suffering and trials to test who you truly are to shape and mold you into the what the military wants you to be pressure in our lives may reveal that we don't have the faith we thought we had think about that 
it was the famous World War II general George Patton who said that fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that quote is commonly attributed to Vince Lombardi because he said it many times, but he was in fact quoting uh, Patton's book. It demonstrates the point that when we're tired and tested, we have our limits really brought forth and we learn a lot about ourselves. It's only through the fire do we grow. It's also interesting to note that as the story of Job progresses and the constant wearing and tearing of his friends upon him and the grief that's building up, it almost seems as Job is spiraling downwards. And it seems as if God knows Job's breaking point and steps in at that moment. No man's invincible. So it does make sense. It also demonstrates that God knows our limits and how to build us. It's also important to note that God never explained anything to Job. Think about that. When he showed up to the scene, he just asked Job a host of questions that he could not answer. He didn't explain anything about the divine conversations that took place. After all the questions that were asked of Job, he simply responded in chapter 42 and verse 5 and 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Hmm. In his book, Beyond Suffering, Leighton Talbert said the theme of Job is not just about the purpose of suffering, but is more about God's character his ways, and his relationship with man. If we can just understand this, then we'll not only understand the book, but also our own suffering. The book of Job is also about who is in control when we suffer and who is not, how we help those who are suffering, and of course, how not to, <laughs> Job's friends, mind you, how we should respond to suffering and how we shouldn't. This book actually teaches us very little as to why we suffer. The author and theologian Robert Bell said, quote, The suffering Job endured in the prologue was merely the beginning of suffering mentioned and later in the book. Satan went and took Job's possessions, his family, his health, his prestige, his well-being, and his orientation. So what do we mean by prestige? Job was well known for in the community, and we see that in Job chapter 4 and verse 3. It says, Behold, this is when his friend stood up, uh, Eliphaz, and, said, and he said, Behold, thou hast instructed many. It means he taught people. Thou hast strengthened the weak hands. He took care of weak people. Thy, has, thy words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. So it goes back to Job's character that even his friends, I mean, knew of his reputation, that Job was a man of good character, that he was an influence in the community. So that's kind of what it means by losing his prestige. Of course, his mental well-being was affected because he grieved greatly. His former peace and tranquility, well, pff, those were out the door. Now, orientation is talking about him just being in utter confusion as to why everything had happened. Suddenly, after experiencing tragedy, now he had no idea 
where he stood spiritually with his creator. And that would devastate him. And he says as much. This brings us to the culmination and main point of this entire message. So we saw that Job had a purpose in this story, a grand purpose to be the example. Then we see that suffering does have a purpose. Now we're going to see that glory comes from suffering. What if I were to tell you that the glory of God and people being saved comes through man's suffering? At its base concept, we seem to understand it, but let's make it a little more personal. What if the glory of God and people being saved comes through you suffering? I want to explore this concept a bit and walk us through some very thought-provoking examples in history. There was an old Methodist preacher by the name of John Atkinson who wrote his book, Garden of Sorrows, in 1868, speaking of the sorrows of Christ. 1868, man, that's three years after the Civil War. That was a long time ago. He said, quote, Now, if Jesus could not walk our mortal pathway without being subjected to mortal woe, is it strange that innocence and goodness suffer? If earth could not afford its maker a home without giving him also a portion of pain, is it strange that none of his children are exempt from a like portion? Goodness is no protection against suffering. The purest of saints have often been the most tried and tortured. End quote. I still remember receiving this particular book from a friend who found it in a yard sale. This book wasn't a reprint. It was literally a book from 1868. It was really a blessing getting this book. Very powerful words that outlived this man by, what, over a 100 years. Going back to our types of suffering, there's much that we can actually learn because there's a lot of suffering that we inflict upon ourselves just by simple things like not taking care of our bodies, for instance. Maybe we suffered injuries as kids playing sports and or foolish decisions as adults that just plague us in our older years. So yeah, that hurts a bit, right? Well, it's not God's fault. There are some other instances too where, I'll give an example to really paint this picture, there was one young person that was bitter against God that his dad, who was a pastor, had to suffer with kidney problems. He had been in and out of hospitals in his older years, but he was still preaching away. The story was that before he got saved, he was an alcoholic, and that took a toll on his body. Look, it's not God's fault that we suffer from these kinds of things. If we abuse our body we're going to have to suffer the results of that. But one thing is for sure, if God's not through with you, then he's not through with you. There's, a, there's nothing's going to happen to you until he's done. So you can be out of the, in and out of the hospital. That's fine. But you're still pushing on and moving through. And, of course, I'm sure that this preacher was more than okay with him having to suffer. Why? Because that particular suffering reminds him of where he came from. That's a very powerful lesson. I've also met those who are mad at God because they're old and they suffer from their body failing. I would then respond, 
look, you're 60 or 70 years old. Did you expect to live forever? <laughs> May we be all blessed to live at a good old age. And that day is going to come where, guess what? You're going to have to meet God. But really, the one that bothers our consciences the most is the affliction type of suffering where we just don't see a reason or purpose to it. That's the one I want to address right now and give a very thought-provoking question. In the book of Acts, in chapter 9, it's most notably known for the conversion of Saul into the future Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road. What happened in the previous couple chapters, though? He was wreaking havoc upon the church, and we see the stoning of Stephen. Let me ask you a question. Let me put it in a way that might make you flinch a moment. People had to die in order that Paul might be saved. Think about that. People had to die in order that Paul might be saved. The Lord says in chapter 9 and verse 5, quote, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. End quote. What is he saying? That as he was dragging Christians out of their homes and either throwing them in prison or murdering them, God was guiding him to salvation. Now, that's a little hard. That's a very hard teaching. Did those Christians know that their deaths would be used to convert a very hardened man who would transform the Roman Empire uh, through the teachings and the churches and eventually the epistles that he would write and would be considered scripture? It means the Lord was working on his heart as he was doing these things. Think about this. What if your death, maybe you were given a glimpse by God into the most horrific death that you could even possibly imagine happening to you. God gave you a glimpse of what that would be like in a certain amount of days. And he said that your death would cause 1,000 people to get saved. Would that bother you? Would it be worth it to you? What if it was 100 people? What about 10? You know, we could do the Abraham thing here and count down. Um, what about one person? What if your death, in whatever fashion God deems, brought about that person's salvation? One person's salvation. What would you think about that? The question that we really have to examine in our hearts is, is if this example bothers us. We really have to think about some things when it comes to the scope of eternity and our purpose here on earth. That's very powerful. What if your entire family endured a tragic accident and you were the only one that survived? Through your suffering, people see this in your spirit before God and get saved. Would it be worth it? Look, this is kind of one of those concepts where we can have a general head knowledge and it's a little easier to acknowledge it that way. But then think about the tragedy that would strike your life if, and how you would feel about it. Are there any examples of this in history? Yes, all through history. There is a story of a man named Horatio Spafford in 1871. After the terrible Chicago fires, 
this businessman and attorney lost a large portion of his finances, and soon he had lost his four-year-old son. Heeding the advice of a friend, he agreed to an extended vacation to Europe with his family. Anna Spafford, his wife, and the family boarded the luxury liner, but Horatio decided to stay back a few days to clean up some business at home before he would head out and meet them in Europe. During the evening hours of November 22, 1873, the ship was struck by another sailing vessel, breaching her side and sending her to the ocean floor within two hours. Not only was there a loss of 226 passengers, but also Horatio's four daughters, his four little girls. Only his wife, Anna, would survive the shipwreck. He immediately took another ship to go meet his wife, and while in transit, the captain took him aside and showed him the approximate spot in which the ship went down. He was troubled, but he went to the bottom of the ship, and God gave him the words to the great hymn, It is well with my soul. These words were then put to music by Philip Bliss and sung throughout many evangelistic conferences throughout the next over a, over a century, actually, over a century. In what seemed a human tragedy, a greater work of God was done that would literally influence millions of people, millions of people because of this man's faithfulness. That's powerful. The death of his little girls brought about something greater. Did he receive rewards in heaven for this? Oh, I bet he did. I bet he did. Now, let me give you an example that's a little closer home for me with the Vietnam War. Now, this is a huge impact upon uh, my wife because she's Vietnamese. Her family was anti-communist and helped the Americans during the war. When the U.S. retreated out of the country and the communists took Saigon, they murdered various family members of her to include her uncle. Somehow, her dad was protected. She wasn't born yet, but her father remained to eventually bring up his family. Here's some questions to think about. What if the United States never entered the war? How would that have changed the landscape and culture of Vietnam up till today? Would there have been the mass exodus of Vietnamese that would come to America? What would have happened to my wife's family as events changed in history? She came here much later as a student. And there are many different possibilities that could have happened, but God allowed what we know now as history to take place. She would eventually be born and, as a young child, cry out in hopelessness to a God that she didn't even yet know. God then heard as Matthew chapter 18 verses 12 through 14 describes as he goes after a lost sheep all the way on the other side of the world in Vietnam uh, compared to where I'm at here in America. He would bring that girl here to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and she would become born again. Of course, we would eventually meet and get married later on, but how much of her life and my life would be so drastically different if events changed? How much of the lives of the Vietnamese, Vietnamese people who would eventually become Christians have changed? Yeah, we can say about the, the nature of communism and the, some of the evil things that transpired there. I'm not saying that God's hand was directly upon that. But the fact remains that though that evil took place, though that suffering took place, much good came from it. 
much fruit came from it. Maybe this should really change how we all perceive the events in our lives, whether they're positive or negative, and maybe that there's something greater at play with God's plan in our lives. When the events seemingly take a turn for the worse, is it really for the worse? Hmm. We have to come to the conclusion as Christians that God is on the throne and he's working his plan in our lives and the life of others. This is the main message that Job is teaching us because we are reading and feeling its impact today. God did not forget about you or your circumstances. We are finite beings and we have a hard time thinking in the grander scope. Think about the previous stories and the great events in history and what seemed to be a tragedy. Yet, in the grander narrative of history, there was something greater at play for the Lord and all the generations that came after those individuals. Sometimes they knew some of the events that would transpire before they died. Other times, these people never knew this side of heaven anyways. These are powerful lessons that if we could just think outside the box a bit, it'll really help us understand how God works in this world and it will help us understand how he walks with us through the fires of this life, but still works his plan in that his sheep would get saved. I pray that this message has blessed you tremendously and that you may grow in grace with Christ. I want to thank you for listening and be sure to follow the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, ourmightyfortress.com and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content and remember to find your refuge and strength in our mighty fortress.